strange things are afoot at the Circle K. I'm very important. Uh, I have any leather-bound book, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. I, I'm friends with Merlin Olsen, too. He comes over on occasion. there in podcast land. This is Johnny Doe. I am your host and this is Strange Things Are Afoot at the Circle K, a uh, kind of a social commentary type podcast. Yeah, we'll talk about some current event issues, but when thinking about what this podcast is really about and what it's not about, there's a lot of podcasts that just talk about current events and gives opinions about stuff and not that I'm not going to do that, and I haven't done that, but it's also about um, how to think about the world and, and how to uh, uh, optimize your life and how you think about your life. Um, I champion myself as being a regular guy. Uh, the overarching theme of this podcast is that I'm an everyday American with a regular job. I do not make any money off this podcast. I don't have any advertising. Um, I really don't have very many listeners. And I'm doing this as much for myself as I am for anyone else. Of course, I want this to be successful. And of course, I would love to get um, a lot of listeners. And I wouldn't be opposed to making money off this podcast. But that's not what the point of this podcast... That's, That's not what I'm intending on doing Uh, I'm not a celebrity I'm not somebody that is trying to be an actor a comedian, a singer an entertainer I have a regular job and it's not even a job, it's a career Uh, I am in the military Uh, I'm working a um, kind of a very regular 9 to 5 type job in the military uh, in a very red state in the Midwest and my perspective is always coming from the common folk so one thing that I um, that I want everyone that's listening to this to understand is there's a lot of opinions and a lot of voices out there and one thing in the last year especially during this election cycle that we've all been kind of thrust into is that there's a lot of people in this world that don't feel like that their voice matters or their opinion matters or that people are watching out for them. That's where I came up with the idea of this podcast because I hear, um, obviously, if you have a platform, those are always the most vocal people. But I started thinking about, after listening to a podcast and listening to some celebrities um, kind of interject their opinions about the political climate um, that I I just felt like they were way off. They were disconnected from what the reality, my reality is. And that's the everyday working American um, that doesn't live on the East or West Coast, doesn't live in a major metropolitan area like New York or L.A., Um, that there's a whole bunch of living and a whole bunch of life going on 
of people that they just can't relate to. And then I thought to myself, well, I have a platform if I choose to have it. Yeah, I don't have um, a million followers. I don't have a hundred followers. I have 45 people, I think, right now that follow me on Twitter. And they're mainly probably people that are trying to sell me something or get me to listen to their podcast, which I might end up listening to some of them because I do enjoy uh, podcasts. But I digress. My the, my point is that this is I'm starting from ground zero. Nothing. No marketing. No experience. Only thing I have is an opinion. And that's what I'm doing. I am trying to use this and grow it so people like me can now have a voice and have a platform. So without further ado, we're going to get into, this will be episode seven. I will be uploading it here, uh, you know, right after I'm done with this. Um, So, you know, I was listening to a podcast today and they were talking about Donald Trump and a lot of current events. And I actually had a a whole plan. I had had some prep. I've been doing a little bit more prep for my, um, as I pop my peas. You know, this, um, what is it called? Like a um, pop filter. I don't know if it comes across to you guys or maybe I'm just extra critical, but I hear every time I pop. And this pop filter doesn't seem to, uh, I guess it's not going to eliminate it altogether. But anyway, man, I get distracted. It's that ADHD thing, man. It's something that I think that is prevalent in our culture. I don't even know. They think it's an overused term, like it's you're diagnosed with some kind of disease. But I think if you live in 2017, you have some degree of it. And I definitely have it, uh, a severe degree of it. So... <clears throat> The format um, or the prep that I did had a whole bunch of stuff about Donald Trump, a whole bunch of stuff about the protests at UC Berkeley, a whole bunch of current events, you know, uh, Trump this, Trump that, um, people's response. And I was like, you know, that's that's so overdone. And there's a time and a place that I, I'm giving my opinion on that stuff, but I, I want to try to dive in to some of the more nuanced things about about how um, how to view your life, right? So yesterday I did a podcast for about an hour about all those topics, and it didn't go very well, in my opinion. I won't op- upload it because I can't because I already deleted it. I just I I didn't feel like I had the energy. I felt like I was I was reading a script in the sense of I was just saying. You know, moving my lips and words were coming out, and there were, I didn't even know what I was trying to say. And I was kind of frustrated with it. And then I watched uh, UFC 208. I'm a huge UFC fan. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I'll, from time to time, upload a UFC podcast. I thought about doing it for UFC 208. I didn't. Um, I might, because I definitely have some things to say about uh, the main event, Durandarandamy. Um, and... Jermaine Durandamy and Holly Holm. Um, I think Holly Holm definitely got robbed. But I was not happy with that event as a whole. Uh, I really look forward to to those events. And uh, 
yeah, it was disappointing. And I stayed up really late uh, doing some other stuff. My wife was out of town, so I was playing some video games and just generally kind of bored and didn't feel like going to bed and stayed up real late. Then woke up way too early, slept like shit, and woke up in probably the worst mood that I've woke up in in recent memory. And waking up in a bad mood is bad enough. But waking up in a bad mood and you really don't know why. Like, okay, I watched the UFC event and it wasn't very good. I played some video games and I lost. Um, I didn't sleep very well. I, you know, whatever. Those aren't very good reasons to wake up in a bad And I'm talking about I woke up in a just a horrific mood. Uh, my dogs were wanting attention. I was pissed off at them. Um, I, I, I really didn't want to be around them. I was watching TV. Nothing was good. I didn't feel like playing a video game. I didn't feel like... Uh, making any breakfast I was tired but I couldn't sleep and I was thinking about all the things that I didn't accomplish this weekend that I thought I was going to get accomplished and I started getting stressed because I was like I wanted to do like two or three podcasts I wanted to do some things around the house I wanted to finally do my taxes I didn't get any of it done and I was so fucking frustrated because I was like it's Sunday and I got an extremely busy work week ahead of me and I just instantly started getting pissed off. And something I talk about a lot is trying to take control of your of your life. And when you um, find yourself in these moods, there's there's a couple different choices that you have. And I have never been somebody that that um, use substances to to uh, fix my problems. I'm not a pill popper at all. Like I'll take an Advil every once in a while and that's it. I'm not. I'm not like if my knee hurts, my back hurts. I, I still don't take an Advil. I mean, I got to have like a pretty bad headache to take an Advil. I don't drink alcohol at all. Um, I don't smoke. I don't do drugs, and I never have. My one vice is probably sugar. I eat a lot of sugar in the sense of I have a NOS energy drink every day, just one. Um, but I'll definitely have some food that has sugar in it. Uh, I'll eat some fast food every once in a while. Um, probably, you know, three times a week at least. Um, I eat pretty healthy, uh, the rest of the time, but breakfast is pretty shitty. I'll have a pop tart, more sugar, right? Um, you know, I'll have some cereal that probably has some sugar in it. You know, just general stuff. I'm not I'm not shoving Snickers bars down my throat. And generally, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I go to the gym on a somewhat regular basis. I'm not uh, out of shape in the uh, in the physical sense. Like when you look at me, you wouldn't go, "Well, that guy's out of shape." But I'm not in the best shape that I think I should be in, as far as cardiovascularly, strength wise, all that stuff. But um, you know, I really don't have anything to complain about when it comes to that. But um, I don't, I don't really have a vice except my my energy drink. And like I said, I have it one, one time uh, a day. I have a one can of Nos energy drink. I would love to have them for a sponsor so that I can get some free stuff. But uh, that's that's my one 
uh, Achilles heel, I guess. Um, and then just my diet in general, as far as, um, like I said, I'll have a pop tart. I'll, you know, I don't really drink Coke or anything like that, but, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm setting my expectations too high, but I, I do, I should say caffeine. Caffeine's the one drug that I'm definitely addicted to. I'll have a, a cup of coffee in the morning and then a NOS. So left that out. Have my caveman coffee. Caveman coffee is awesome. My wife, uh, is hugely addicted to it. She loves her. She loves her coffee, and she's about the same as me. That caffeine is pretty much the only drug that she uh, that she takes. But uh, caffeine's a wonderful drug. I'm not trying to say that there's anything bad about it. But I don't use any mood enhancers. I, I don't. I don't play around with uh, with any of that stuff. And so, usually, I'm not in a bad mood. I'm not. I'm not uh, a moody person. Usually. Now I'm I'm very um, emotional in the sense of if something if I'm pissed off I guess the one consistent mood I have a lot of anger and I vent a lot, uh, hence why I decided to do a podcast to get some of that stuff off my chest. But uh, but I don't hit things I don't punch things I don't throw things I don't beat my wife I don't cut myself I don't drive my car excessively fast and fucking you know I'm I'm past that stage in my life where I was you know an angry young man. Um, so when I woke up and I was extremely pissed off and I didn't know why I was just like angry at the world. Um, and I knew I had to pick up my wife at the airport that afternoon. And I was like, I really don't want to pick up my wife after not seeing her for a couple of days and, and just be a shit and just be an asshole and not be able to identify why. So, uh, one of the good things about when you get to be in your forties, you, you definitely, have uh, reflected on your life and being able to uh, it's given you the opportunity to look back and go I shouldn't have acted like that I should have fixed that uh, you get a certain introspective view of potential problems that you're going to uh, go down so 10 years ago I, I would have been in a bad mood and just let people react to me but instead I go okay let me let me take ownership of this. What can I do to fix this? I can go back to bed. I wasn't tired. I'm one of those people that I, I just wake up. And uh, if it's past a certain time, like I can go to bed at 9 o'clock or I can go to bed at midnight. But I'm always going to get up around somewhere between 6.30 and uh, 7.30. I mean, consistently. Um, I can't sleep in. I, I It's probably been... I can't even remember last time I slept in past 8 o'clock. I mean, I... I it's a legitimate uh, lapse of memory. I can't even remember. I'm sure I have, but I don't remember when that was. It's probably been a decade. Um, but I'm just so I knew that was out of the question. I, I, you know, maybe I can take a nap later in the day, but I knew I wasn't going to just go back to sleep. And I had a lot of things to do before I needed to pick up my wife. And so I was like, oh, I got this to do and this. And I was like, you know what? No, you don't. Those things that you wanted to do, they'll be there tomorrow. Whatever stuff around the house, whatever yard work, whatever laundry, whatever. Just don't worry about that. But I was sitting on the couch, wasn't doing anything. Watching TV, wasn't doing anything. And so I was so angry. I was like, maybe I need to channel this anger into something. So I decided to go for a run. Not a big runner. I kind of hate running, actually. <clears throat> but being in the military, that is part of our PT test. 
And so I do have a PT test coming up um, here in a, in a month and a half or so. So I've, I've been trying to start running again and just so I have a decent run time. Um, but I knew I, I don't like running. So doing it would, I would uh, kind of be able to um, purge some of those demons by just making myself run. I'd be pissed off. Maybe I'd run faster. And then, you know, um, it would kind of work itself out. And if you don't exercise, one of the things that you have to understand is it's hard to be angry when you're extremely tired, if you're exhausted, um, if your physic, if your physical body is, is tired, not, you know, when I woke up this morning, I, I was tired and like in a lethargic way and kind of mentally drained. But, um, for me, physically wearing myself out does calm me. So I went out, I ran for about two and a half miles, um, then came back and walked my dog and, uh, dogs for probably another mile and a half or so. Um, and then came back showered. And then I felt like I was a, a different person. I felt like all that just kind of went off my shoulders. So I was, I was extremely pleased that I was able to do that, to identify the problem, what the problem was, and what it wasn't. Back in my younger days, I would have let that turn into a one or two day ordeal of just being pissed off. And I was extremely proud of myself for identifying the problem and taking ownership of that and saying, no, there is something you can do. There's a way that you can solve it wasn't cracking open a beer. It wasn't smoking a joint. It was um, taking ownership of it and just purging it from me, however that is. And I'm not And I'm not saying that it's bad if you smoke a joint or drink a beer. Uh, me personally, uh, I don't see a lot of value in that. I think most times it's there's probably more constructive ways, but never being a drinker and never being someone that smokes pot, I don't, I can't say without with all certainty that that's the wrong way. Um, through the people I've seen and been around, uh, alcohol is definitely the wrong thing to do when you're, when you're moody to consume. Maybe marijuana, it's a little bit better for that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so, you know, I just started thinking about this podcast. I'm like, well, you know, I want to mention that. I want to mention waking up in a bad mood and taking ownership of that. And realizing that you can take back those things that frustrate you. And you can do it as long as you are honest. And one of the things that I say to a lot of people, no matter if I'm training them in the army or back when I was a school teacher or just talking to friends or family members is... It's one thing to lie to your to to lie to other people, right? To tell somebody, "No, I'm doing fine." Hey, how's it going today? And you just say, "Well, I'm doing great." You know, Buddhism would tell you that that's a bad thing, but oh, there's probably worse things, right? But you should never lie to yourself, because if you lie to yourself long enough, you might start to believe it. 
And no matter if you, if it's lying to yourself or it's just not identifying what the problem is, um, sometimes you make decisions that uh, impact more than just that day. And you know what I'm talking about, especially when it comes to relationships or things like that. And so as, as I've gotten older, I've learned to vent my frustrations, um, target what I'm angry at and, and take ownership of it and trying to do something about it or, uh, just shrugging it off and going, you know, that's not that big of a deal, but it's important that you always identify those things. Life is about management and it's not about being happy or sad. It's about managing the happy and the sad times. I always look at it like a, think of it like a shipping business. Okay. Like UPS. There's days that not too many people order shit and they just don't have that many deliveries, right? And then there's days that it's two days before Christmas and they just can't keep up. And so life isn't about just having kind of the middle ground between the two. It's managing the two extremes. And so you can't plan, um, you can't, you can't, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, you can't just assume that it's going to be a slow day or a heavy volume day. You have to be prepared and manage whatever that day is. If you are a you know a, a regional manager at UPS, and this is just a, a hypothetical because I don't I've never held that job, so I don't know, but. Um, for instance, if you're a regional manager and, and uh, you just have a week where it's just like, hey, we don't have that many packages to, li- to deliver, the warehouse is getting a little thin or the, um, you know, the, the main delivery hub or whatever, we just don't have that much to deliver. Y- your management is a little bit different because you're more managing personnel, uh, the hours they work, making sure no one's on overtime, making sure that maybe some other tasks get done like maintenance on the vehicles. Um, you know, things like that. And then on the, those heavy volume days where, or weeks where you go, okay, this is going to be a super busy week. You manage it differently. You manage making sure uh, budgetary things, making sure you have enough, you have, you've budgeted for lots of overtime, making sure that uh, all your employees are plussed up, that you don't have any job openings, for instance. Um, and if you do, trying to fill those making sure that you have plenty of warehouse space, that all, you know, all your trucks are operating. Uh, your management is just what you do is completely different. But it's still management. And nobody that runs a business like that ever thinks that they're ever going to get to where just even killed every single day is the same number of packages and they can just plan for that. Companies constantly have to um, lay people off and hire people depending on where that business is going in that particular quarter. And that's the way that you have to look at your life is do you need to plus up your employees or do you need to start firing some people or laying some people off? Um, it's management. It's not about fixing your problems. I don't like the, 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 the term that you have to fix something. Because I don't know that you ever do. I had lots of anger problems when I was younger. I got into lots of fights um, and was just a just an angry person. And 
I don't, I don't think I defeated that. I just learned how to manage it. So fixing it, not, not such a, uh, a good term. And that's not how I choose to look at life because I don't think people are necessarily broken. It's just identifying it, not lying to yourself, understanding this is what I am, uh, for good or for bad, and then just figuring out how to how to deal with it in a constructive way. And the the most important thing is is to give yourself a break. When I woke up in a bad mood, I, I could not let my wife come home and then make her fix me, because that's that's never good. You have to learn to fix yourself and you have to give yourself a break. And so I just took some of those responsibilities that I put onto myself. No one else put them on onto me. And I said, you know what? My taxes can wait. They're not due for a couple months. Um, so why do I need to do it this weekend? The laundry, hey, you know, I have clean clothes to wear tomorrow. So I don't have to do the laundry right now. Dishes. I got time to do them, so I'll go ahead and knock them out. But first, I'm going to run. I'm going to go walk the dogs. I'm going to enjoy. We had some nice weather. I'm just going to enjoy the outdoors. It had a certain calming effect. I, I live in a smaller town, and so just going out and running, you don't run into very many people, and you're kind of out in nature. And then walking my dogs, you know, just seeing them get excited about, you know, just going on a long walk and kind of getting some of their energy out. It kind of calmed me as well. Um, and that's the gift that I gave myself as I, as I lightened up and gave myself a break. I didn't beat myself up. I didn't continue to beat myself up for being in a bad mood. I just said, okay, I'm in a bad mood. For this particular um, day, I don't know what the why is. Don't care. It's not important. I understood that there really wasn't a why. And so dwelling on the why was counterproductive. So I, what I decided to dwell on is how do I fix this? How do I um, mitigate my mood? And it started by giving myself a break and then taking ownership and figuring out how I can make it better. Now, I wouldn't say I'm in the greatest mood in the world today, but I would say I went from a, on a scale to one to 10, 10 being a great mood. I went from a, about a two to probably a seven or an eight. So that that's a significant difference. Um, and, you know, those things are a chain reaction. Because I'm in a good mood when I pick up my wife from the airport, then we uh, are able to talk and converse and enjoy each other's company, and it's not a, a wasted day. Think of all the days that you waste with loved ones or uh, friends or family that um, you're never going to get back. So, you know, sometimes you can't fix that. If, if a tragedy happened, um, you know, you're not going to fix that mood. But, when you identify that, hey, there's no why, there's no real reason for me to be in this mood, then you can take it back. You can take ownership. So 
that's my little take it for what it is, people. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a perfect person, and neither are you. The difference is, I know I'm not perfect, and I don't try to be. I, I'm not striving for perfection um, necessarily. I'm trying to be as perfect as I can be, understanding that there's always going to be flaws. I've talked about this before that the yin and the yang. You appreciate. I appreciate being in a good mood once I was in a really bad mood. And it just makes it that much better when I can snap myself out of it. I don't want to be just melancholy. I want to be, I want to know the extremes. My wife and I talk a lot about it's, it's nice living in the Midwest because you get to experience all the seasons. And as soon as you are sick of winter, all of a sudden spring starts to sprout up. And then before you know it, summer's there. And then fall, you, you, you see it starting to, the leaves starting to turn and, and uh, you wake up early in the morning, there's frost and you're like, oh man, the summer's over. Oh man, winter's coming and you start getting kind of depressed and uh, the holidays and all that stuff. And before you know it, the cycle starts anew and it makes you appreciate it because you know that that cycle is cyclical. It, one, you know it's not going to last forever. But two, on the flip side, you know when it's in the cycle that you don't like, it's not going to last forever either. And that's a good feeling. It's a lot better than something that it's having the potential to last forever because if you're on the wrong side of that coin, it could be debilitating to think, oh, this is just how my life is now. And I've noticed that that's, you know, when you're going through something bad, if you know that it's cyclical and you know that there's a way out of it and you know that tomorrow it could all change, it does give you hope. It does give you that spirit to go, you know, I'm just going to take a mulligan on this day and when I wake up, I'm going to start start anew. And you just keep that process going. You just never accept defeat. Never accept that today has to be, that it has to be bad. You don't know how bad it can get. So always be fighting and clawing and try to make it just a little bit better. And then when it, you are having just one of those easy days of just enjoyment, revel in it, appreciate it, and know that that's what life is about. It's about those days that you weren't necessarily planning on having the greatest day, but hey, it's happening for you, and this is just an enjoyable day, so I'm just going to, well, enjoy it. Okay, so... The next thing I wanted to talk about is just a little bit about me and my background. I haven't really got into that on this podcast. You know, I, t- I talked about um, a little bit about my former jobs and what I do for a living now and, and stuff like that. And, and, I, and I'm a little cryptic about me because I enjoy my privacy. I don't want people to know necessarily who I am. Um, I'm not trying to, to be well known. I don't want people to be, I I enjoy my life. I enjoy my anonymity, anonymity, if that's a word, I guess, you heard it the first time. So I enjoy my private time, but as any credible person, you have to kind of let somebody in a little bit. So, you know, I talk a lot about on this podcast about having dreams and having things 
um, that you're going after. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing just to live a regular life. But it doesn't mean that you can't have dreams and aspire to things. But one thing that, that you're never going to hear on a podcast by a celebrity or somebody that's famous or somebody that is, uh, I've achieved my dream, I've gotten there, I'm famous, I'm rich, I'm whatever, uh, actors when they give their speeches and all that stuff is that sometimes when you're chasing your dream, that dream changes. And sometimes the dream doesn't change and you change and your dream stays the same. And every once in a while you achieve that dream and you realize that dream isn't really what you wanted. Because sometimes we don't understand what we're chasing until we get it. It's kind of that old saying of, you know, the dog chasing the car and then he catches it. What, what's he do with it, right? That definitely happened to me. When I was younger, I, you know, I wanted to be an artist. I still consider myself artistic, but I don't know that I'm an artist anymore. But that's used to be what I was. I mean, I, every day I woke up and I drew, I was an illustrator. I would study art. I would draw. And if I wasn't doing that, I was thinking about it. I was one of those guys that was, if I was driving in a car or I was hanging out with somebody, um, my mind would wander and I would, and I would stare at someone's face and think, and and look how the shadows were, were hitting on their face and how I would render that in an illustration. I would notice like trees and, and try to look at like, um, especially once I got into what you're actually drawing is what light is reflecting, right? And what light doesn't reflect, you're not drawing that portion, you know, the, that's anyway, looking how the light affects everything, right? And I would just be in my own little world. And that's all I cared about. And when I went to work, I definitely didn't put everything I could into my jobs. My jobs were just a placeholder in my life until I got to do what I really wanted to do, which was draw for a living, make money on my illustrations. And I worked a number of different jobs. My, my, my biggest jobs were I worked in a lumber yard for a while, worked as a security guard for a, a major league baseball organization, and I worked for General Mills Corporation um, making flour and making Bisquick. Um, none of those jobs paid really good except my uh, job at General Mills was a union job and actually pay, paid pretty decent really good benefits, all that stuff. Um, but none of those jobs did I take serious. When I was the security guard for the Major League Baseball organization, that job was the longest job I've ever had besides my military career now. I worked there for five years. From ages 20 to 25, um, 19 to 24, something like that. But when I went to work... I worked the overnight shift. I worked the midnight to noon shift on the weekends. And during the week, it was midnight to eight. 
And I love that job because it was my first job that I was there and I was all by myself. My boss would leave at midnight after I, he signed over the keys and radio and flashlight and all that stuff. And I would lock the front door and I was, I had the entire baseball stadium to myself. One person. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, think of a multi-million dollar Major League Baseball facility. I'm not going to tell you which one, but it is a very prominent one, especially since they won the World Series a few years ago. Anyway, this baseball stadium had a caretaker, and it was a 19-year-old man named me. One person. And I my job was to check every single door, every single office, um, and make sure that everything was locked, the computers were off, um, that there was no water leaks anywhere, of course, no criminal activity, make sure, check all the gates, all the fences, uh, you know, just generally make sure that the place is, is, is running the way it's supposed to. You know, you think security, um, of course, you're trying to keep people from breaking in, but I was more of a caretaker. Think of the, the movie, The, Sh- the Shining, and Jack Nicholson was hired just to be the caretaker of that of that hotel, that inn. That was basically what I was, except I wore polyester and a fucking badge, right? So uh, I loved that job, but I loved it because I had freedom. I would go to work and I could draw. I could draw at night because I could get all my rounds done, all my stuff, and I could just sit there and doodle away. Well, then I started realizing I was so tired, it was hard to concentrate. And so I started sleeping at work <laughs> and then drawing during the day and staying up all day and working on my on my illustrations, my comic book stuff. And then at night, after my boss left, I would do rounds for maybe an hour and then I would go to sleep until about six in the morning and then get up, finish all the rest of my rounds till I got off at eight or noon, whichever time. But I would, I would probably sleep anywhere from three to six hours at work every single night. And I did not give a shit. I had no pride in doing a good job. I was just doing the bare minimum because I did not respect that job. I saw it as a stepping stone. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with, with not wanting to work somewhere uh, long-term and just seeing it as, as um, hey, this is going to get me someplace else. Later on, uh, I actually quit that job for one specific reason. And it was because by the time that I quit, I was sleeping at that job more than I was working. I didn't do any of my rounds. I pencil whipped everything on my on uh, my log of what I checked and what I didn't check. Um, I was grossly negligent in the sense of I just didn't do any of the things I was being paid to do for the most part. And I felt like that job was making me extremely lazy because... I knew that I didn't have to put any effort. I didn't have to try. And it was not, I, I wasn't going to get anywhere in my life with that attitude, I guess. And even though I was trying to become a professional artist, I knew, somehow I knew 
that that was not a position I want to put myself in where the that that I was ex, that I was just super lazy. I I had people that I worked with that were 40, 50 year old men that were working that job, and they did try, in the sense of they needed that job to pay their bills. Um, I mean, and feed their families and stuff like that. But they were extremely lazy. And you hear them complain about the the the, the littlest things. You're like, man, this job's fucking easy. What the, what the hell are you complaining about? And I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to turn into that guy where anytime I got to get off my fat ass to do something, I'm going to complain about it. And I go, no, I got I to get the fuck out of here and just get a regular job. So I went from that job to working in a lumber yard. And I worked my ass off. I mean, I had to unload lumber, stack lumber, work outside, no matter if it was 100 degrees or if it was minus 10. Um, And it was, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week of getting splinters, you know, getting stung by bees, getting sunburned, getting frostbite, you name it, right? And I worked there for about three years. And I did enjoy it. I I learned some skills. I kind of got out of my comfort zone and I was doing manual labor that I, I, I had respect that I was actually doing a good job. Um, I felt proud. I got laid off of that job because they went out of business. And I was unemployed for about 30 days before I got my job at General Mills. And General Mills was the first job that scared the shit out of me. Why did it scare the shit out of me? Because it paid very well and had great benefits and it was a union job which if anyone uh, listening to this has ever had a union job uh, you could pretty much shit in the boss's mouth and you would just get suspended for a couple days you i mean there's a guy that literally got caught smoking pot on the job (laughs) and he was a forklift driver and he only got he got fired and 30 days later, he got his job back because the union, they just, that's what a lot of union jobs are, you know? They're there to protect the worker, right? <clears throat> uh, and even if he can't protect himself from his own stupidity. So, <clears throat> why did that job scare me? Is because I knew that, oh, I didn't have to become a professional artist now. The very first time, I ever had the thought that, wow, all I have to do is just do this job and I could do this for the rest of my life and retire and get a pension. And that thought actually went into my head. And I could not believe um, that it even entered my mind. So that scared the shit out of me. Because I was like, I don't want to fucking do this the rest of my life. I don't want to be like these fucking losers, right? working this fucking job and you know I was working with guys that were 40 and 50 and I'm in my mid 20s and I'm like I don't want to be I don't want to be them and they're thinking man you're so lucky you got this fucking job I mean there was like 45 guys that applied for this job and I got it right and so everyone thought I was lucky my friends were envious you know I grew up pretty poor I'm still living in in government housing at the time and I'm making so much money I mean the lumber yard I was literally making double what I was making in the lumber yard I mean, no hyperbole. I was making double. And so when you have figured out how to live on a certain amount of money and then you double that, 
it's like you're rich all of a sudden. And so I was able to not only pay all my bills, but I was able to buy things, buy things that I wanted, things that were nice. And <clears throat> next thing you know, another job came open in General Mills that even paid more, but nobody wanted to bid on it because it was you had to test and it was really hard. But I did it and I made it, and then I was making even more money. And so I went from doubling my pay to almost tripling my pay in like two years. And I noticed that, um, you know, I, 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 I put effort into this job, but I would always tell people, man, I'm not going to work here the rest of my life. I'm not like you guys. I have a dream. I have things that I want to do. I want to be an illustrator. And so I would constantly, anytime someone would be like, yeah, whatever, man, you're going to be here for the next 20 years of your life. And I was like, fuck you. And, and I would have that in my head, that chip on my shoulder. Like, I'm going to go, I'm going to fucking show them. I'm going to do this comic book shit and I'm going to fucking do it. Right? And one day I had an opportunity. Uh, shortly after uh, I married my first wife, she got another job offer where it was going to force me to move, therefore quit my job at General Mills. And to preface how scary that notion is, is there something I want you guys to understand? Is at this time, I had no high school education. I didn't even have a GED. I dropped out of high school. I lied on my application to get this job, said that I had a high school diploma. I was a, um, uh, I was a pretty smart guy, could pass all the tests, you know, to get into all the mechanical aptitude stuff, all the, you know, um, so nobody thought the wiser. That was back in the day. It's like, oh, we'll believe them. They didn't need a copy of my diploma or anything. They just believed me. And I knew that I couldn't just go off and get another job. I mean, I, I could, but I don't know that I could get this job. I worked my way for three years to, 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 like I said, I was making double, then I was making triple what I was making. And I knew, man, if I move somewhere, I, I'll probably go back to a job like in the lumberyard where I'm making shit money. Well, my wife at the time, of course, her career was extremely important. She, she was a, a medical professional, so she was going to be making some bank. And she convinced me it was in my best interest um, that our family move across the state and, um, you know, her salary would be enough to pay the bills. So I wouldn't have as much pressure on, on me to, uh, to be the breadwinner. And I was like, no, no, cause my whole life, that's the only thing I've done is I've always fed myself. I've always clothed myself, always paid for my own housing. I've, I've always done that. I've always been that guy, that hard work and blue collar guy. And then the thought came to my head and people in my life said, this is your one opportunity to do your artwork full time where now you don't have to worry about double shifts. You don't have to worry about working overtime. Now you can actually have full time dedication to your art, to your craft, and you have no excuses. You'll make it then because when you're working those jobs, that's your excuse. Man, if I could do this full time, I would be able to, you know, if I could just have a couple years to dedicate 
to, to just really getting this off the ground, I could make something, I could be successful. Well, when you're presented with the opportunity, it's pretty scary to give up your job, give up all the power that you have, um, to not be able to pay your own bills, to be dependent on somebody else. It was a very scary proposition, but I thought it was my only opportunity. It was my one shot. And so I took it and I'm not going to go make this extremely long story even longer by going through all the ups and downs of my art career. But let me just tell you how it ended. Is I did get professional work. I was able to make money at it. I did have books published. I did have um, lots of different career opportunities. But it did not turn out to be what I thought it was. Yes, I wasn't making huge money where I could pay my own bills, where my wife quit a job, where I could, you know, um, I wasn't making a substantial amount of money. I was making enough to be able to say I was doing it professionally. But that wasn't the problem. It wasn't the amount of money that I was getting or wasn't getting. It was, I was realizing that what I dreamt about wasn't coming true. I thought being an artist, being an illustrator, was something completely different. I didn't realize that I would be working twice as many hours. I mean, I would literally work sometimes 16 hours a day just to get these pages done that I needed to get done for my deadlines. That means I couldn't work out. That means I couldn't play any sports. That means I couldn't go to the movies. I was just drawing. I was sitting in a room drawing getting cramps in my hands and my neck was hurt and my back was hurting because your posture just sucks because you're sitting there drawn and erasing and drawn. And that's the days that you can do it. And then there's days that you have mental blocks and artist block and you can't come up with anything. It's so frustrating. And then on top of that, you're working with other people, writers, publishers, producers that are constantly interjecting their opinion into your art and You're working for them. And it wasn't fun. But I would have moments of, oh, this book's coming out. And, oh, this is getting picked up. Or you see a review on a website. Or you post some pictures and get all this pats on the back and adulation. Oh, you're so good or whatever. And, and, And that was enough to go, oh, man you know, people are liking my stuff or I'm going to get famous or, you know, maybe a Hollywood agent would call and you go, okay, this is going to be my big break. And so you had enough that was kind of keeping you, you had some skin in the game, right? Well, what actually killed my art career? What actually killed it? It all started when I was, went to a comic book convention in Chicago, had table space. My publisher paid for the table, flew me out there, got me a hotel and my, I had a book that was coming out that weekend and it was a book that I've worked on for over a year. I was the writer. I was the illustrator. I was the anchor. I did everything except the, uh, the letter, the little word balloons. I didn't do those. Um, I did all the grayscale. I did the color cover. I pretty much did everything right. 
and it was my baby. I've already had some Hollywood interest. Already had a uh, um, a uh, what's it called a a entertainment lawyer contact me. I guess he was an agent. He was an entertainment lawyer. I don't know what the fucking difference is, but some suit from fucking LA that was wanting to shop my property around and try to get me some options. Right. So things were looking up. It looked like, um, I was going to go somewhere because if, if, if you have interest in one book, then they automatically go, well, what else do you got? And they want to see your whole portfolio. And then they start, start shopping that around Hollywood. So at this time period, I was, struggling for about three years, not making a huge amount of money. You know, I've, I've, I've pretty much pissed away my other career and I put all my eggs in this basket. Now I'm sitting in Chicago, the debut of this comic book that I've worked at for over a year. My comic book's getting ready to come out. I have a entertainment lawyer that is shopping properties around uh, Hollywood. I got big name. I mean, big name guys. They weren't big at the time, but now they're huge big name directors and producers that were reading my treatments is what they're called. Looking at little mock-ups, drawings, um, scripts, people, uh, screenwriters doing revisions on some of my stuff. And I had multiple properties out there. It just looked like I was going to be something, right? Well, my book was going to debut at the Chicago Comic Con. And it wasn't quite done yet when I left for Chicago. So they were going to overnight like 250 copies to Chicago so I could sell them there. And they are supposed to be there on Friday. They weren't there on Friday. And then they said, okay, Saturday they will be there. And so I spent all day Friday telling everybody how great this comic is going to be. And just jazzing people up and trying to be a salesman and trying to just go, this is going to be awesome. This full color cover, there's going to be, you know, it's black and white with gray tones on the inside. And there's only one color that's on the inside and that's red. And for all the blood, all the different, you know, scenes where, where this cowboy was shooting people and you'd see blood spray and that was in bright red. And I just was so stoked for the, just the artistic vision that I had for this book. And Saturday came along the book has arrived and this guy from the courier service wheels it over to my table and I had a huge crowd you know huge from my perspective like 30 people around my table table because they all were here on Friday hearing me hyping this book saying how badass it's going to be I had posters of it I had t-shirts I had all this media showing them what it kind of what it was going to look like and then the book came out and the printer fucked it up. I opened that first box and there was no full color cover. It was black and white, just like the inside. And the cover wasn't what we call full bleed artwork. It had a border around it, which I didn't want. And it pissed me off. The cards, the, uh, the paper stock, the card stock was fine on the inside, but it wasn't a glossy cover. Then you open up the inside and they had grayscales, but there was no no red blood like I wanted. And it was such a letdown. And it didn't look as professional as I wanted it to. So much so that those 30 people, they kind of saw the disappointment in my face. And I will tell you right now, it is extremely hard to sell something that you are not enthusiastic about yourself, especially if it's something that you produced. I found that out with doing this podcast. That's why I've deleted so many of them. 
But it wasn't that that killed it. Okay. The printing is off. The publisher kind of fucked up a little bit. It wasn't delivered on time. It wasn't delivered to the specifications. But my art is still there. My artwork, my writing, my storytelling, everything that I spent a year developing. A year of my time developing this. 10 years of trying to become a professional artist is finally coming to a head. I've had some published work, but nothing like this. This is going to be a huge book being shopped around Hollywood, everything. And so I sold a whole bunch of copies. And I had people walk up to me. Maybe two hours later that went, did their shopping, went back to their hotel or went wherever and read my book, liked my book, thought it was entertaining, liked the artwork. No bad criticism yet. But immediately came back to my table and said, well, that was pretty cool. And I go, oh, thanks. And they're like, when's the next one come out? And just like this podcast where you heard that long pause, I thought to myself, holy shit, I spent a year making this one. I didn't get three or four in the can before this one came out. I was so excited to actually finish a book to get it published. I never once thought how much work that it was going to take to keep the ball rolling. My publisher at the time was kind of a local publisher. They were pretty new to the game. <coughs> they were just trying to get content out there, so they didn't really think about the long game about, hey, let's get some in the can so we can you know, consistently get this up. But this was still supposed to be a quarterly book. It was, you know, every three months a new one was supposed to come out. But all I can think about is I spent so much time getting this book polished, getting it the story exactly how I wanted it, the artwork, and put so much blood, sweat, and tears, and somebody consumed it completely in 15 minutes and was like, okay, now I want the next one. And I was like, oh, you know, it might be a while. And they're like, okay, cool, well, just let me know. And then they just went on with their life. It It didn't change anyone's life. It didn't cure anything. It didn't inspire anyone. All it did was entertain someone for 15 minutes. For 10 minutes. Whatever it took them to read that. And they put it back in the plastic bag and they went off and read something else. And I don't even know that they remembered it a week later, a month later. I don't know. I don't know how much it resonated. But I realized that I put so much work and I had such high expectations. And even when that book was well-received, it fell flat. It fell flat because I was disappointed in in, uh, the print quality. I was disappointed in the reaction that it got. I, I just set my expectations so high. And yeah, it wasn't like the next X-Men. It wasn't a a big thing. And and all those movie deals that I spoke about, uh, they all fell through. 
on that particular book. I later got one, but with that book, it, it all fell through. I did get an offer on it, but it was such a joke offer and they wanted to change everything. They want to make the main character a woman and they want to make it like Pirates of the Caribbean and blah, 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 blah. <coughs> and I said no. And so when a some dumb fuck from the Midwest says no to your first Hollywood deal, they do not call again. Not anytime soon. And so pretty much within a few months, everything dried up. The people that were interested in my book, after waiting two or three months, they weren't interested anymore because it's been so long since I put anything out. I was halfway done with issue two. I um, you know, sold a lot of issue one, but like I said, it just it did not people thought it was cool, but that's as far as it went. I mean, you work so hard and you just don't get what you think that, that, that you should get out of it. And so I was living this life of a professional artist. I was having gallery shows. I was, um, at a nice website, had, you know, some, some, you know, two or three comic books on the stands and it just, it, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It wasn't fun. It was work. And that's when I realized that it wasn't whatever you did for a job, no matter what it was. If you're doing it 8 to 10 hours a day, it's going to become work at some point. And, and this is all around the time period of like 2004, 2005. And I would start to realize that my book and my artwork was not changing the world. And I, and I kind of felt empty. I was losing my motivation. I was losing my desire. I wasn't making a lot of money. What was I doing it for? Because I used to just enjoy drawing just for me. Enjoy writing just for me. But now it's a job. And so to pay my bills, I would start, I would stop doing that comic book and start working for other writers and other publishers that just needed an artist for hire. And so I started doing that. And that is even less gratifying because it's not your baby. It's somebody else's. You're drawing it the way they want it drawn. They're, they're dictating everything from the camera angle to, you know, what the guy looks like to what the characters are doing, you know, everything. And so it is so unfulfilling because you just don't have the creative freedom that you do do in your own books, but it's paying the bills. So you keep doing that. And then I started doing some advertising work and doing some covers to novels and album covers. And before I knew it, I was just an art whore, just somebody that can make deadlines that was doing mediocre work that would, I would get a, you know, two or three, four hundred dollars for a piece of artwork and I would just have to churn so many out per month to be able to pay my bills or to just make a decent amount of money. And you'd have one month where you made really good money and then three months where 
either you didn't have any jobs or they didn't pay very well, or you're working for some shitbag that decided not to pay you because nobody respects artists. And they're like, oh, fuck, I don't have to pay you because the book's not out yet. So whatever, you know, it, it was just disappointing on every single level. And by the time the year 2006 rolled around, at this time, I started to reevaluate my life. I started going back to the gym. I started trying to get in better shape. Um, and in 2006, the troop surge happened in Iraq. And at this point, I was in my early 30s, just turned 31, and realized I have never done my part. I had friends that got deployed two, three times to Iraq and some to Afghanistan. And I thought to myself, holy shit, there's all this shit going on in the world and I'm just in my own little fantasy world trying to get people to read my comic books. And I remember having a discussion with a bunch of other comic book artists and they were drawing comic books about like war and about like death and about people getting shot and they all had the opinion of like George Bush just being evil and uh, soldiers being, you know, they should be brought up on war crimes. That's an unjust war and all this stuff. And they had all these opinions, but none of them ever did anything. I realized that I was around a bunch of artists that have never really lived a life. They've just always been artists. And so when they were, when they were telling their war stories, they had to do a, a, a ton of research because they didn't know anything. They had to research it. And they had no life experience. And I remembered thinking to myself, well, what a bummer if I died tomorrow and all I had was a bunch of fantasy, make-believe stuff that I just made up. But I've really never lived a life. I've never really done anything that I wanted to do. I've never left the country. I've rarely traveled. I've worked shitty jobs. I'm, you know, I'm literally locked into an office 16 hours a day drawing and making things up. What kind of life is that? So I decided to join the army at 31 years old. And by the time I actually joined, I was 32. I was almost 32 at the time when, uh, when I first looked into it. But by the time I signed up and went to basic training, I was 32 years old. I quit my comic book career. I knew that I could put it on hold and I'll just come back to it. And I really thought to myself, I'm going to join the military. <coughs> I'm going to get deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan. I'm going to fight in a war. And I'm going to come back and I've actually lived my life and I'm going to be better than these other artists because I'm going to come back and know something about the world, something that they don't. I'm going to have an experience. I'm going to be inspired. I'm going to be like Hemingway, right? I'm going to have all these, these things. I'm going to be like Socrates. I'm going to be like some of these great, um, you know, historical literary figures, uh, Homer, you know, um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to experience war and then be able to create art based on what I experienced. So I went to basic training, went to AIT, got trained as an infantryman, uh later went to my unit, um later got deployed doing artwork sporadically. But I noticed after basic and AIT, 
my art desire started to go down a little bit. I flipped a switch in my head where if anyone that's ever been in the military knows the creative side of you needs to kind of be um, restrained and you need to be more analytical, especially when it comes to understanding regulations, doctrine, um, being a very disciplined soldier. It's not about you being creative and being an individual. It's about you being a member of a team and, and doing something that's bigger than yourself. And so I retrained my brain to be more analytic, to be, you know, uh, try to be physically more in tune, be mentally strong, um, all that good stuff. And I was still drawing, but I, I noticed that I just, I lost something. There was, I just didn't have as much desire because I, I wanted to just train more. I wanted to do more army stuff. Um, and then when I deployed to Afghanistan, I actually volunteered to go. They're, they're, they only needed 30 infantry guys to go, and I volunteered. And I remember that they were like, okay, you know, you're going to Afghanistan, and they want me to, to, to design some art for, like, our platoon shirts. And then they wanted me to, like, uh, design some stencils to put on our, our turrets and stuff, a, a logo. And I refused to do it. And I told them, I was like, I'm not an artist anymore. I'm a soldier. And I, and I joined the army to be a soldier, not to, not to be an artist. If I want to be an artist, I, I would never have joined the army. And so I deployed, did over 200 combat missions, seen a lot of shit, experienced a lot of stuff. I came back with a full intention of, I'm going to, I took a year off, didn't even pick up a pencil one time when I was overseas to draw. And I'm going to come back and be inspired. I'm going to write some great stories. I'm going to create some great characters. And I came back, did a couple army schools, got some more training. And when I came back, I realized that my life had become way too real. And it was extremely hard for me to live in a fantasy world. I could not use my imagination the way that I could before. Because I actually thought about actual situations that made it not a fantasy. It made it kind of hitting close to home. And I was like, okay, well, I'll just write stories that are just a little bit more gritty, a little bit more like that. And the more I tried, the less interest I had in doing that. Now fast forward 10 years later, I'm still in the Army. I always say military because I didn't want to give out which branch alienate people. But yes, I am in the Army, but I'll continue to say military, I'm sure. I am a senior NCO, and um, it's what I love to do. Not not always. Just like being an artist, there's days that I want to quit and I hate it. But one thing I realized in chasing my dream to be an artist, and in a lot of ways I achieved it, is I did not understand, one, what my dream was, and two, that I was going to change Thus, what I desired and what I wanted changed with it. 
And it's kind of become like a trivia question. I have a couple of very close friends I'm in the, I've served with for a long time. And we'll be teaching a bunch of young privates. And every once in a while, they'll throw it out there, want me to draw something and brag about me. They'll tell the young privates my name and tell them to Google my name. And, you know, I still have a couple books up on Amazon. And, and um, you know, kids are like, oh, I can't believe that Sergeant blah, blah, blah does this. Yeah. And, and I, it, I always downplay it because it's, it, it wasn't that big a deal. And they're like, Oh, did you get rich? Did you get famous? I'm like, no. And no, you know, it, it was a good, I had a good run. I'm glad that I did it, but I wasn't rich. I wasn't famous. My stuff isn't going to be remembered. It's not going to be revered. If anybody read it, they forgot it almost immediately. But why I changed, why my dream changed is because what I did in the military will be remembered for a long, long time. You crack open a history book right now, every major battle, maybe they don't tell all the names of all the warriors, but everything militarily that's been done in this world, those stories go on and on. Like I tell my friends, what I do or what I did in the army, they make video games about that. They make movies about it. And I lived it. That was awesome. That that experience no one can ever take away. That in those 10 years of me being in the army, I've you know, I've gone from never been outside the country to going to eight different countries. And even though I have something to write about now, I choose not to because I now understand that those stories, I don't, I don't necessarily feel compelled to tell them yet, but in this podcast, you know, is a, is a, it's just kind of a storytelling format. So I'm just choosing to tell a different kind of story and to use my art a little bit different. I don't want to draw pictures anymore. I rarely draw. I Every once in a while I do, I get compelled to, but I'll be about 15 minutes and, and I get bored with it. Because what I'm achieving now and what my dream now is to leave a legacy of a, of a, a military career. And I don't need to be famous. I don't, I don't need to be revered, but... Everybody in the military has what's called an I love you book. And it's nice to know that mine's big and thick. And I have lots of things that I accomplished because those accomplishments are actual experiences. So my dream changed. Because what I wanted before is to make believe. Now I want to make reality. I want to know when I'm old and gray sitting in a wheelchair that I lived my life and it's better to live a life that other people want to tell your stories instead of you trying to tell someone else's. That's my new dream. Living a life worth remembering in a story. So now it's up to someone else to tell that story. But I don't have any regrets. And that's why I constantly advocate on this podcast for people 
that are everyday Americans living their life. They're living experiences that other artists and other people will talk about and make into a movie. How many cop movies are out there? How many firefighting movies? Hell, they make how many movies about teacher, school teachers, doctors, lawyers? And every once in a while, you'll have a movie like La La Land where they're, they're Hollywood's narcissistic self wants to have a love fest with artists, you know, like, oh, look how great we are. And let's make a movie about us wanting to make movies. I mean, it's just whatever. But the most compelling stories are what you see every single day. If you just grab a regular person and have them tell their life story, chances of it being interesting is, is very good. I can say without a shadow of a doubt at 42 years old that I've done a lot with my life, not just in the military, just in general. To not make believe, to not invent, but just repeat. Maybe embellish a little bit, you know. A good army story isn't very good unless you embellish a little bit. Everybody that's a veteran knows that. It always starts with no shit, there I was, but... This podcast definitely isn't going to be about that because my military stories are for me and the people I served with, and that's it. And every once in a while, I'll, I'll share one if it's pertinent to something else. But that's what I wake up with every single day is realizing that I have lived a very full life, and I want to continue to do that. And it doesn't mean jet-setting all around the world. It doesn't mean... Um, you know, uh, going whitewater rafting and, you know, I'm not saying that it can't involve those things, but it's about just being awake in your life and, and, and taking in whatever experiences that you can and realizing that not to waste a day. And, and there's nothing wrong with being an artist. There's nothing wrong with being a musician or an actor, but that's not what makes the world go round. And I wanted to live a life that I felt like I achieved something and that I had experiences that helped shape the world around me. Not with make-believe, not with things that I made up, but that I, that I lived a life. That I put myself out of my comfort zone. And like I said, I... I really don't want, if you're an artist, to, to feel like I'm attacking you because I still am an artist. It's in there somewhere inside of me. But one thing I realized when I had, you know, my entire friend group was artists is that they were very self-congratulatory and they were very narcissistic. They were very caught up in thinking how smart that they were and that they were giving, uh, you know, they were turning a mirror onto society. But one thing that I realized the people that I hung out with, especially in the comic book world, is it was just a bunch of dorks that never did shit with their life that wanted to tell make-believe stories and then judge other people. And that they were very much so self-absorbed in how great that their stories were or their artwork, or whatever else, that they were missing out on living their life. 
and they thought living a life was just traveling to city to city to city promoting their comic book. And maybe that is, that is, a, that is a life, but it's not the life that I wanted. And it's not the only life worth living. But I wanted to be the person that they were telling the stories about. And that when I talk about certain things, that I can come from a perspective of, I've been there. I've done that. I mean, one of my greatest accomplishments was something that most people would not think was a great accomplishment. But I used to love Michelangelo, the Renaissance artist from Florence, Italy. And when I worked at that stadium, uh, that professional baseball stadium, I used to read books on Michelangelo because he was someone, if you're an illustrator, to study because he had a phenomenal grasp on human anatomy. And so I studied a lot of Michelangelo when I was trying to learn muscle structures and how they connect with one another. And I, and I got involved in, in learning about his life and his legacy and, and what he went through in Florence. And I would read everything about Florence, Italy. And I was like, oh my God, it'd be so awesome to go there someday. And you know what? I had the opportunity to. And when I went there, I went there for three weeks. Three weeks. And I didn't even get, in a, uh, get a hotel. I rented an apartment. And I want to experience the Italian culture and really soak in this ancient Renaissance city that still has like the rooftops from medieval times and see where Michelangelo and some of these great artists like Da Vinci used to walk around these cobblestone streets. And it was one of the most fantastic experiences of my life. It wouldn't be as gratifying if I didn't have lived in other ways besides just being an artist. Because I went to Florence after I deployed to Afghanistan, and it did give me a new appreciation for artwork and a new appreciation for true artists like Michelangelo that actually had to sacrifice things in their life for their artwork and really, you know... Um, I don't know. They they were just a different breed, you know. Da Vinci was a different breed of artist than what you see today when I see like a professional illustrator. And so whatever your dream is, never ever be scared to one day realize that you have changed or your dream has changed. You can modify it, you can evolve it. And when I tell this story to people, they always want to throw it, throw the label of you quit on your dream. Oh, you failed. And so you're just a failed artist. You're just this. So you decided to go get a regular job. And, and that's the narrative that people say. But I didn't want to be that. Once I started to achieve my dream, it wasn't turning out the way I wanted to. And I realized that it, anything that you do for a living becomes work. And so if I was going to work for a living, I didn't want to do it from the inside of like an eight by eight art studio. I wanted to do it out in the world, taking risks, 
and experiencing the good and the bad that life has to offer. So that's what I did. Everyone should have a goal. Everyone should have a dream. But some people's dreams are just to be a manager at a hardware store. Or I'm going to try to sell the most cars that anyone's ever sold at this car dealership. And what's wrong with that? They have a great story about being a car salesman. And it might not be sexy. It might not be glamorous. But somebody has to sell those cars. Somebody has to do that. And if that's what your dream is, then go for it. But never be scared to come up with another dream. Because once you live your life, you realize there's more to it. It's not just about people you see on TV and being famous and being rich. It, It can be, but it doesn't have to be that. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's not what I was after anyway. So, I don't even know what my dreams are now. Because this podcast is the beginning of the new stage of my artistic expression. I don't want to draw anymore. I don't want to write. I don't want to work for months and months and months and hours a day just for like a year later put something out that somebody can consume in 15 minutes and forget about almost immediately and i know what you're thinking well if you're that good they wouldn't think uh forget about it immediately oh bullshit think about the best movie you ever seen at some point you move on with your life and you're not thinking about it anymore right well this podcast can serve the exact same purpose except it's only taken me an hour you know a couple times a week to do instead of months out of my life. There's a time and a place maybe that I'll do something else, a drawing, an illustration, a story that it needs to be a little bit more time. You know, if you're a writer, some things are just better on the page. You know, if you narrate them, it's just not as good. Or if you turn it into a movie or something like that and you know if that presents itself and I feel like doing it but right now I don't right now I like having conversations I like um, giving lectures I like I like conversing about the world and and talk about life and people living their life so kind of been rambling the last 10 minutes or so but that's my story and where I'm at now uh, I have a million stories. That's just one of them. I thought, uh, why not tell this one um, and and talk about some of the dreams that I've had and what my experiences were, you know, getting there. Um, I would love to hear some other people's um, dreams and things that they wanted to do. And to me, those are the always the best stories are just regular people. Regular people to me are so fascinating. I think they're fascinating for a lot of different reasons, but just look at how many movies that you watch and they're not portraying actors and singers. I mean, every once in a while they are, but most movies are about real people because those are where the compelling stories come are just regular people. The best, the most compelling warriors, you know, that are told in like war stories are just regular dudes that be, that became exceptional 
because of the circumstance they were put in. To me, those are the most compelling stories, right? So if you're listening to this, then you have a compelling story too. I, I know that you do. And um, it's just about how do you want the, it to begin? What's the, what's the middle and what's the end going to be? You just got to have all of that. You got to have some good and some bad. You know, no story is complete unless you went through some struggle. And that's what I realized when I was being an artist. My struggle wasn't enough. I wasn't going through the pain. I had to go through that pain of joining the military, being away from my family, risking my life, traveling all over the world. And that gave me a new perspective. And I look at the life, my life completely differently. That's why I cannot go back to being the artist that I was before because I cannot see the world the same way. I have had my eyes ripped open and I can't shut them again. And that's okay. That, that's, that was the risk of doing what I did, but I felt compelled to do it and I wouldn't change it for anything. So never be afraid to chase those dreams, even if you're afraid of them. And don't be afraid to not have a dream and just go after the opportunities that are presented to you and you might wake up one day and realize you're living the dream. It's not a movie. It's not a fantasy. Real life is full of ups and downs, but sometimes that is the dream, right? Okay. Well, thanks for tuning into this podcast. I went extremely long. Um, I'm not even going to edit this down. I'm just going to upload it and, um, you know, whatever. So check me out at a foot podcast at gmail.com or foot podcast Twitter or www.afootpodcast.com. We are on Stitcher. We are on iTunes. Please um, feel free if you enjoy this, leave a review or subscribe. If you don't, then don't. I don't give a shit. I don't, you aren't helping me pay my bills. So I don't give a fuck what you do. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Till next time. Thank you and be excellent to each other. Why did I say that? That's fucking stupid. Later.